Hi everyone, it's Joseph Harwood and I'm bringing you my podcast experience, Agitprop Interviews. I fell in love with podcasts after finding out how relaxing and interesting they could be. In this series, I will be sharing stories. I will be delving into different facets of what I'm interested in, from food to lifestyle to travel to spirituality, and I'm very excited to share this from an LGBT perspective. Please enjoy them. They're always peppered with things that make me a little bit more curious, and hopefully they'll make you a little bit more curious too. Today's podcast is going to be an interview with the incredible Daniel Lismore. Now, Daniel is someone that I have known through the periphery of the London club scene for nearly 14 years, and he has been such a huge inspiration to me for so many different reasons, not only because he lives his life as artwork, and he has done so much incredible artistic ventures that I'm sure you guys are aware of, from creatively directing a fashion brand to many exhibits that speak about selfies and well before it became a common phrase um, this was being debuted in the Tate in London he's also an incredible humanitarian and I've always been really enamoured with how much he is invested in looking into different forms of human rights whether it be in countries that we don't have LGBT rights or whether it's moments of um, extreme poverty or famine I've always been very impressed with Daniel because he has been a considered and articulate advocate for many human rights causes throughout the last 10 years, at least. Um, I've always been really kind of amazed and inspired to do similar things because I didn't see many LGBT people before, I'd say 2015, taking a huge interest in the globe and the planet and environmentalism or human rights in different countries. He really has walked the walk and so many people have been kind of like big figures in the London scene and have been fashionable and gorgeous and stood out but Daniel genuinely is a kind and polite lovely and welcoming and embracive individual and I was always inspired when I was younger to be like that to younger people that came after me I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable or to to declare myself as superior to them I wanted them to learn from my mistakes and my and my successes and do their own thing and that's to me what Daniel has done he's always been embracive of new people and he is a really incredible person I really wanted to know about his story. I wanted to know how he met Isabella Blows. Um, That was something that was kind of fascinating to me from the get-go. And I remember even from MySpace days, (laughs) like this incredible androgynous supermodel who had this lineage and this link to Isabella Blows. And then she passed away very sadly. And I didn't understand how that all came together with him. So I asked him all the questions and hopefully you guys will enjoy the conversation. So I always start off asking people about where they began. And I understand you grew up in a village called Philongley. Yeah. So I grew up in a small village called Philongley um, in the middle of England. Uh, It's the village next to the very centre. And I grew up uh, with my grandparents and we lived in a big old house. And they bought it from a derelict house and turned it into something beautiful. Um, My dad was an antiques dealer. Um, and he would bring things home all the time. And my, my family came from, um, well, from Dublin um, on that side, and they moved here with nothing and, and created, you know, something amazing. And I've always been inspired by their, their drive to, of curiosity, actually. Um, my dad was one of those people that would just talk to anybody and my mum would host a lot of um, get-togethers. I, you know, in the Irish community, there, there's a lot of family parties. I was always really shy, but I was, you know, watching from behind the sofa what they were all doing. And I guess that kind of um, stuck stuck in my head. So, yeah, that's where it started. <laughs> and I knew you initially because you were like a supermodel that was very androgynous. And when I was a kid, they were trying to groom me into being this little supermodel, which I was not fit for at all. Um, But you were someone that I always reference as being like, oh, my God, this person has done it. Um, How did you become a model? What was the story behind that? I was 15, maybe 16. And I went to the clothes show at the NEC, which was like a big... um, a big fashion event and it I, I was scouted as a model and I thought it was a scam to be honest because at that time there were many of these strange model agencies around and you heard about it on the television that 
you know, some of them were a scam, some of them, you know, were legitimate. So what happened was, I remember it so well, actually, and it's weird that it's all just come back to me. Um, a year later, I went again, um, and there was this lady called Debs, and she was from an agency in Manchester. And so she came up to me, and all of her other um, model scouts came up to me, and I thought, well, this must mean something. I got scouted about seven times that day in, um, in the, the place. So I was scouted by Select also, and I went to London. I was scouted by Select out of thousands of people. I was chosen out of five people. I was there for a few days, and I remember I started with a, a famous model at the time. He did all the Dior campaigns called Daniel T., and they came into the room and said, um, sorry, Daniel, um, you're gonna have to go, you're not right. And I'd met this photographer called Simon Harris um, and he was very kind to me, but the rest of the agents were hideous, to be honest, I'm, I don't care anymore. They're actually hideous. Um, and so I left and I was really upset and I had to go back to Coventry, where, where I was kind of from. And I was walking over the bridge in Camden and my dad called and he said, Daniel, the model agency want you to go in and see them. And I said, no, dad, they've just sent me home. Uh, and he said, no, 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 this is a new one. You know, this is a different one. So there was an, the um, Debs from Boss in Manchester. She also scouted Karen Elson. She um, got on the phone to me and said, look, there's a new agency opening called ICM. You have to go and meet them. So I went and met them and that was it. I was taken on. My first job was Lemo Vogue, shot by Phil Pointer. Um, and I was thrown into this crazy industry called the fashion industry. So. That's intriguing to me. So when, when you were initially um, having that disagreement or the, the initial agency said, no, you're not right. Do you think that because you had such a beautifully androgynous look that it was almost like a bit too early for what's going on in the world now? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it was all a bit strange. Um, I walked in and they were like, you're perfect. And then they were like, go home. So uh, when I went to castings, here's the thing. Here's a weird thing that happened to me afterwards. So I would turn up to castings with ripped jeans and you can kind of see my crotch or my nipples like through my, <laughs> you know, through my, um, and I was, I never really hit, but um when I moved to London, things got a bit more extreme and I would wear makeup and go to castings and get told off. And then the agency would call me and say, Daniel, you can't be wearing makeup. Here's the, um, here's the credit card for, I remember it like it was yesterday, actually. Uh, here's the credit card for um, the agency, go shopping at Topshop. And so I went home to my mum and I was like, mum, they want me to start dressing in a certain way. She said, why don't you look up Oscar Wilde? Dress like him. No one dresses <laughs> like that. So thank goodness my mum suggested that. I did. I went back to London. Um, the agency were like, wow, what is this look? They let me, you know, go to the castings looking like that. It was a bit androgynous, I guess. And I met Stephen Fry. And Stephen Fry um, said, wow, you look like Oscar Wilde. He said, you're a genius. You came up with this and you're a genius. I said, no, my mum dressed me like this. And he's like, your mum's a genius. They actually <laughs> became friends later on, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is kind of surreal. Um, so, yeah, that, that, uh, that happened. And that's how it really started. So. That's pretty amazing. Were you then being put forward for menswear castings or women's wear castings or? Because this is where, what, what year was this? Was this like 2004-ish time? Oh, okay, okay. Because there wasn't really anyone, there wasn't many androgynous sort of supermodels that were boys. There was that Amira Motor, who I think she's beautiful but it was because this is exactly the same sort of thing that happened to me but in 2006 and 7 I used to get street cast a lot and then I eventually was invited to go to all these agencies and when they saw me turn up with full face of double wear they were like I don't think you're right and I was like well oh well <laughs> very interesting here's the thing what happened when I went to castings um I remember there was this 
I was actually up for the, um, it was Lily Cole, um, Gemma Ward and Elvis's granddaughter. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember her name right now. Um, and Je I think Jessica Stamm. Yeah, Jessica Stamm. And it was Prada. And I was meant to be the, it was meant to be my first big campaign. And then they came back to me and they said, you look too much like the girls. <laughs> they wanted someone with a, a, a square, like pointy nose and a square face. So I was a bit sad by that. Um, so what happened then was I was told that there were like really big casting directors and they were so mean to me, to be honest. I went to a Jill Sander um, uh, casting and they said, sorry, please leave. You, you look too much like a girl. You walk like a girl. It's not right. Just please leave. And I was like, okay, I can try again. Try it again. And they were like, Mm, nah. Um, so it was weird because I also had bulimia at that time and I also had bulimia before. So it was, you know, it was a bit of a, a self-wrecking time. Um, and I would go into the agency and they were like, could you put some more weight on? Could you take it off? And then eventually I told them I was bulimic and they were like, okay, you have to leave now. <laughs> so. God, I'm. thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry about like all the kind of like, the way in which that was handled because obviously I think we've become more aware of talking about things like that and and offering people support but there wasn't that support there was there 15 years ago um how did you reckon with that did you decide not to be a model as a result well um I've met so many interesting people and I started to do nightlife then I was also a fashion photographer so um, here's a weird thing. You couldn't come out either as a model. You couldn't be gay in a model, or you can definitely couldn't be probably trans then and be a model. You couldn't be non-binary. You couldn't, you know, you had to really fit what was what was in at the time, which is, you know, still happens. Um, and we were walking, there were five of us walking down Oxford Street. And every time we see each other, we recall that time. I was, I guess the, I guess the only one that was really out there I turned around to my friend Jimmy, um, him, we just went to Kenya like two years ago together because we, you know, we had a mutual friend who wasn't very well. And we were talking about all these times um, when, you know, when we were hanging out and none of us knew that each other was gay or the others were gay and like, we were walking down Oxford Street and I was like, yeah, I like boys. And Jimmy was like, yeah, so do I. And we were like, oh, we thought you did. And then... My friend Ben, he was like, yeah, I'm gay too. And then my friend JJ, who was, uh, he used to do the door at um, lots of the, the clubs in London, he was like, yeah, I'm gay. And, you know, <laughs> we're like, what? what's going on? So we were all scared, you know? And then I went to Milan and that was even worse. So, yeah. A don't ask, don't tell mentality. Um, I remember reading, now I don't know if this is right or wrong, but you can tell me if, if this is very far out there, but I thought you were uh, affiliated with Isabella Blow and she was kind of like a mentor to you before she sadly passed away. Um, how on earth did that come to be? Well, um, I was at this on-off thing, which is like a, an on, it's kind of on-schedule, off-schedule fashion week event with loads of designers showing their work. Mm -hmm. And she walked in, um, she started, she had a nose in the air and <laughs> she walked around and um, she looked at everything and she walked straight up to me. She said, you're the, you're the most interesting thing in the room. She said, are you a milliner? And I was like, no. She said, did you make the hat? And I was like, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. And she was like, so you're a milliner? I said, no. So, <laughs> but, but you made the hat. And I was like, no, well, kind of, but, you know, I just, and then I said, I'm a photographer. She said, okay. And then uh, she said, I like your suit. And I said, it was Mark Jacobs. And my mum brought me to Birmingham to buy me this pink kind of purple pink Mark Jacobs suit. And I had this like flat top hat on, um, which was made out of card and glitter. And she then took me over to a seat area. And she said, if you can take a good photo of me, I will let you, you know, I have a project for you. And years, I didn't know who was with her at the time, but now I know it's her friend, Joe. We're really good friends, but we didn't realize it was each other at that time or later on. So um, 
So what happened was um, she had a cigarette in her hand and the man came over and the smoking man just came in and said, sorry, madam, you can't smoke in here. And she literally put the cigarette in his hand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she had a glass of red wine. She put the red wine in her, in, so imagine like a leather seat, um, which was like in the shape of a donut. And okay. she put the red wine in the middle of it. And she got talking and then she jumped back. And as she jumped back, I jumped under and took the red wine out. She was like, what are you doing? I said, you're about to jump in your red wine. Anyway, took some pictures of her. Um, a lot of other things happened after the first encounter. <laughs> and um, she said, I hate them. And I, I was like, oh my God, why? And uh, sadly her feet were in them and she she was recovering from jumping off the Hammersmith flyover. So um, I, that was, that was very sad. You know, I didn't realize that had happened. And she then um, said, take some more. And so I took some more and I was like, please give me another chance. She said, okay. And I took these pictures of her and they were all blurry. She said, I love them. They're beautiful. And so um, we, I, I, she gave, um, no, I gave her my number. And I was with, with my mum, actually. She called me and I was like, mum, it's her. She's calling me. Um, so she brought me to her house in Eaton Square. And she set up stylists and the model, all the clothes. And, um, and I uh, documented her wardrobe, which is amazing. So I took this model around her, um, around the house and also around Eaton Square. And there were other houses. And when the doors opened, I was like, wow, it looks gorgeous in there. I wonder if they'll let me take some pictures. So I was taking pictures in her, in other people's houses, and there was this Rolls Royce, and um, yeah, it was it was so fascinating. Like her world and everything she touched was like magical, and yeah, and that's how I met Izzy. And within that kind of like whole world, I guess you could say that seeing this kind of like ridiculous amount of of luxury um, and coming from like a normal background and and then seeing the power of all these incredible clothing and noticing like within your own wardrobe how when you chose to dress like Oscar Wilde someone saw you that was amazing like Stephen Fry or when you had this incredible hat someone saw you like Isabella Blow like did you start to realize the power of what you wore then? Yeah, I, I knew um, from a young age, me and my brother had a dressing up box and then I hung out in Coventry in the goth scene. And then when I moved to London, I went to Nag 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 every night and I saw, you know, um, it was a place called The Ghetto. And I remember seeing Boy George and Pete Burns and Bjork and Kate Moss and Princess Julia and Tasty Tim and all these cultural icons that we know. Um, just on the dance floor going crazy. And, it, it, you know, that it was like I found my home. So... That's, yeah. I made the most terrible mistake because I was probably about 13 or 14, but pretending I was an adult on MySpace. And some of the London gays were trying to kind of like bring me up to the London scene when I was a little kid. And I was just like, okay. And I remember one of them asked me, he was like, oh, are you going to go to pop stars? And this is when like the TV show pop stars was on tv and i was like yeah i'd love to audition for pop stars like me and my naivety not knowing it was a, a london nightlife oh my god but all of these places they were like i they were in my periphery but i was a little bit too young to go there so i can only imagine how much fun you had yes oh my gosh and i well i discovered the clubs before i started modeling actually um i met, i studied photography and I was obsessed with the work of Stephen Arnold and David LaChapelle. Um, mm. my, I had a, a wonderful teacher, a photography teacher, and she was a lesbian and she really got me. <laughs> you know, she was one of those people that got me. Um, and she showed me this work and I became obsessed with it. So uh, I did a few photo shoots trying to, trying to like copy Stephen Arnold. And I met this guy on Gaydar. Um, and he <laughs> said he had a friend from London. And I was like, well, can I maybe photograph him? Because my ex-boyfriend, uh, my boyfriend at the time let me down and said he wasn't, wasn't coming to the photo shoot. So this guy called Andrew, um, who was one of my best friends today, um, he came to the shoot. I photographed him and he invited me to London and took me to pop stars and took me to the ghetto and took me to... G-A-Y and the Astoria and all these places. 
And I remember being so wild, like wild. Um, and also, I remember having poppers um, running down Holborn tube station. Can you imagine? I mean, first of all, how dangerous. Second of all, it was like there was no gravity. And <laughs> um, so that's how the night would start. And it was, that, was, that was just the start of me exploring London. But I also met a man called Oliver Rothschild, who um, still remains one of my good friends. Uh, and he started to bring me out into like circuits of like the royal family and um, Sloan Square, like all these people. And then also there was the fashion scene that I was meeting. And then I was meeting artists. And then I fell in love with Soho. And I always wanted to do a documentary on the people in Soho. Um, and I was I photographed everything. Um, so that's how that's how I started to find my feet in London, and that was a uh, yeah, that was that was that. I've met that Oliver before. I was at Wahiki or wherever I think it's called. What's that? It's like a tiki bar place. That one, yes. I was I was on a date with this ridiculous man, and he was there. But I will tell you that maybe off the podcast. <laughs> so you you realised how amazing nightlife could be and how fun and how you found your sort of tribe. And then you began to create these incredible visual presentations um, and was highly recognised because of them. When did you start to really build that visual? Um, to be honest, when I was young, and then when I lived in Coventry, in a, in a village, Cov- uh, Falongley, and I started to dress up, no one really saw that. Only the people in the village that had seen me go for a pint of milk um, and my family. And things just started to get a bit more surreal, I guess, when, when I got to London. Because I was seeing my people, you know, I'd found my people. And um, it started, you know, it's the looks got bigger and bigger and I met this designer called Levi Palmer. We ended up dating um, and he would show me some other things and we ended up moving in with each other. And I'd, when, I, when I didn't have a job, I would spend a week preparing for the weekend. Um, there were, I mean, that was a bit later, but uh, yeah, there was, a, the, looks, the looks were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there were no rules and there were no nothing. And it was just like, go for it, do this and be out there. And we had people like Lee Bowery that came before us. So that was that set a precedent in the club world, I guess, which was quite, you know. Def- definitely. Um, I remember seeing you in, I th- well, I've seen you in several amazing outfits. One of them, you were a magazine cover in real life. That one was fantastic. There was another one that was kind of like Lady Bunny-esque, which I've seen you do. That was fantastic. And I've seen you, um, I think one of the Ilamaska people did your makeup in that sort of Ilamaska style, which looked fantastic. But then I, I noticed from watching you and your artwork develop that you became almost, to me, you you neutralised your gender expression and you used things almost as like a modesty barrier in some regards you covered your hair more and you started to look almost like saint like I know it's a weird way to describe it but I wanted to know like what your what your evolution was because you definitely have become more sculptural and more specifically I don't know you transcended what you did before I in my opinion is, is that fair to say yeah it is um so what happened was, um, I guess, I think it happened around 2009. Um, we, like, there were no rules. There were no shapes. I experimented. I wore a six foot by a nine foot outfit. Nicola from Machetti styled me with Alistair Mackey one night. And then I would wear, like, anything you could imagine. And it was all pretty out there and whack and crazy and... Um, and I then started to form things, but then, you know, it was a famous fashion designer and he did a collection that looked a bit like me and my Vogue house. Oh my God, the volcano just blew up. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm watching a volcano live in Iceland. It's very exciting. Yes. <laughs> and symbolic movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> What's the volcano um, named, by the way? Oh gosh, it begins with K. Um, well, I can't. <laughs> right now in Iceland, and um, the weird thing is, I've spent a lot of time in this area in Iceland, so it's been fascinating to kind of watch. And um, it's a lava eruption, so. I was going to ask you about Iceland in a second, actually. Um, but, but during 2012, you did an exhibit at the Tate, which was a self-portraiture kind of beautiful imagery of yourself in different outfits. And I guess that's the first big exhibit you did, or did you do any prior to that? Um, that was the first ex-art exhibition. And here's the weird thing. It was a self-portrait exhibition. It was mm-hmm. called... Um, and it was hundreds and hundreds of images of me at, at this in this project that um, I think it was called Tweet Me Up. And it was before the word selfie came along. And strangely, my manager, Oliver Luckett, um, produced that, um, that selfie thing. I was meant to be in the video, but never made it. But um, anyway, uh, so the idea of a self-portrait was really interesting to me. And I, I've always loved the idea of Cindy Sherman. And mm. I recently I've had the pleasure of actually speaking to her, which she, she blows my mind. So, um, and it was documentation as well of my art and, and people sometimes didn't get it. Sometimes they still don't, but I don't mind that. Um, so it's just been that, so that was my first art exhibition. It did really well. Uh, Stephen Fry tweeted about it and Matt Lucas and all these other people and it, it kind of went viral. So they asked me to do another one at the Tate Britain and that um, that one, I had a little experiment. I guess maybe it was also self-sabotage, but I didn't invite anybody. Um, so that was interesting to see how the public reacted. Um, yeah, and you were talking about um, looks earlier. That, that, that magazine cover was the ID honorary um, so it was, a, a, I, it was with ID and they gave me an honorary ID cover, um, but I actually wore it instead. Um, I remember. That with, yeah, that was with Klaus Film. So I was just thinking about that. Um, that was also a take on what I do. And, you know, going back to the Lady Bunny thing, Lady Bunny is like, she is like my spirit, spirit <laughs> queen. Um, and we talk all the time on the phone and she calls me up sometimes. She's like, Daniel? Um, yeah I love you bye and she just hands up and I'm like okay (laughs) Um, that's her in a nutshell Um, she's amazing so yeah I don't know Um, so that was the start of my time as an artist but I also had a fashion label at that time yes Sora Paul that's right how did you begin um, the collaborative? Because you were creative director of Sorapool London and you styled and dressed so many amazing celebrities and looks. When did you begin to brand that and how did that start? Well, he he was at London College of Fashion and I was a bit fed up of nightlife. And this was like, I had years and years of nightlife and through some of the most fabulous parties on the planet <laughs> um i always say when when if i can't get into a party somewhere i'm like eh, it's fine i've been to every other one on the planet it's okay <laughs> it's not very often that happens but it does happen um <laughs> but um he was at college i i really needed to get out of nightlife and i wanted to do something in fashion and i was known for my fashion and fashion week and being working in the fashion world in so many different ways. I've worked with loads of photographers and designers and I've worked for even selling designers clothes at one point. Uh, I worked at Vogue and I did all these things and and it was like, well, I've met all these people. Let's create a fashion label together. And so we started Sauropol and it was on his student money. Um, And his dad went mad when we found out. But um, we start, that's how we started. And I invited every single person I ever met to the first show. And it was at St. George's Church on Hanover Square. And the priest, <laughs> the priest was like, no nudity. Yet he was the one with the camera. You know, it was like quite, quite funny backstage, like, well, not funny, but the priest was like taking pictures just for the, you know, for the website. And I was like, well, what is going on? Anyway, oh, God. That was, <laughs> 
And then we had Jade Ewan, who's one of the Sugar Babes. Um, she opened the show for us. And we spent, we, what we did was got really young, talented, interesting people. And we gave them a chance to make with us. And we came up with a collection. And that first collection, everyone hated it. But today, it looks like all the things like you might see you know, Valentino or Bjork or Pam Hogg or all these, all these brands and labels. And what we did then was so it was frowned on. Um, but now it's kind of cool. So I think we were always so ahead of everything. And I, that's always been a problem for me. I've always been so far, like, you know, trying to do something and it, everyone's like, what is this you're doing? And they don't get it. And then, um, later on it becomes popular so that's been the story of my life mm -hmm. i don't i kind of don't mind it because it's i don't really want to do what everyone else is doing so that happened um can i ask you a question about that quickly because i feel like that very much in my own work because when i started to brand myself on social media there was no lgbt people that were doing endorsements with interscope or getting big checks and things and when i was doing it everyone shamed me for doing it and they were saying to me like oh you're a sellout because you're making money from doing all your stuff online and every single thing that i've done that's been creative i've been told by management companies oh that's not tenable that's not something that people would be interested in i remember just before lockdown i felt in the air something was going to go on during this last year and a half and I put together this website that was all about like vegan food and pictures of nature and just totally out of like left from from what people perceive me to be interested in doing and as soon as I did it and put it online and people saw all of the stuff we went into the first stage of this pandemic and everyone started to become aware that we needed images of reset or magazine covers or we needed to talk about family and food and start working on um, self-reflection and things and I just thought my god every single thing that because I went to so many meetings in 2019 um, and people said no there's no way you're going to be doing this thing and, and continuing on your career path because people will think why are you doing this how do you um, kind of like overcome the feeling of someone else creating a similar idea to what you've already done and then being kind of like they're shining for it do you know what I mean like do you ever feel like it's it's a bit of an injustice there because you were on the ball before do you know what I don't I can't it's weird my mum does <laughs> my mum's like Daniel look and I'm like yeah I know so that's the interesting thing. My mum is like, Daniel, you were doing that years ago. Mm. Uh, a lot of people around me say the same thing. Um, I just know the world needs progress. So as long as the world's progressing and things are happening um, and people are doing, you know, like people like you are out there and I think that's good. I think um, this is a problem with humanity. I think we're an ignorant species. Um, when we see something different and it might not be cool or in or, you know, fashionable, um, it's frowned on. Actually, um, it's you're doing something either first or you're doing something original or you're setting a, a precedent for the rest of um, people. So, you know, <laughs> our communities. And I think it's personally, I mean, I don't have any regrets. So whatever. <laughs> oh i'm learning to be like that what is your star sign capricorn capricorn apparently, um apparently i've been looking at the um tiktoks of those who are in space right now and they're like astrology is fake news <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to work out things from it though i like all that stuff i'm a taurus and i'm very typical of a bull i will see red and then i'll be like oh no i shouldn't have done that after <laughs> but there you go um, i'm learning as we go but um another question i was going to ask you in regards to your fashion and your collaborative aspect to what you do quite often you are creatively involved with bigger projects and bigger brands and then you started to become more recognized for your own work in the last three or four years I would say when you started to um, do a TED talk and you also created an amazing book with Rizzoli how on earth did that come to be because it was it looked like a wonderful progression but it started to be like I could see you doing it for yourself at, what, at some point you realize that 
you know, everything you do isn't good for exposure <laughs> and isn't good for this. You can only do so much and get so much exposure for it. You know, that's, I mean, it's such a bad currency. Um, I, I was at, with Sorapol and I decided to leave, but I wanted to do two things. I wanted Vogue to throw us a party I, and I wanted to dress Mariah Carey. And fortunately, somehow I was able to do those those two things and i left and when i left i'm saying i literally had no job i had nowhere to go nothing to do and i actually became homeless um which was a very you know <laughs> very surreal experience i had no i had nowhere to go and i i was you know there were bad moments but i went to the houses of Lords, um, with Vivian Westwood and Pamela Anderson and Joe Corey and Jerry Hall for <laughs> uh, Cool Earth. And I don't know if they know, Joe knows this, but um, when I was homeless, I had nowhere to go that night. And Joe said, mate, because we're old friends, um, he's Vivian Westwood and Malcolm Clarence's son. Yes. So come over for a drink. And I was like, okay. So I went over. Um, I just did an H&M campaign. And I was in Times Square and I was on Oxford Street and I was all over the place, all over the world. Um, and it was, he was like, well, so where are you living? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not. He said, where are you going tonight? I was like, well, I'll probably go to a friend's house. Um, so he said, there's a room in there. Um, go and stay in it, it's yours. He said, no one's been in it for ages you stay there and I, I moved in with him and that was a, he really saved um really saved me so him and his girlfriend went away on holiday and I called my mum and I said look you're not going to hear from me for a few days I need to figure out what I want to do with my life and so I put six pieces of paper on the table uh, turned off all the electricity including my phone and the internet <laughs> and wrote down what I wanted to do and you know, I mean, this is not a nice thing to say, but a bit of a trigger warning. There was a balcony and it was like, is there a, there's a balcony there or do I continue? And I decided to continue, thank goodness. Um, and so I came up with an idea at that moment, having a 40 foot container with clothes in and being homeless is a huge problem. <laughs> so out of desperation and also an idea that was put to me years ago by someone the Barbican was to do a, an exhibition of all the things that I'd ever worn and of course I live my life as an artwork so um, you know is it a fashion exhibition or is it not so I went out three days later I went to a Vivian Westwood party I met someone called Rafael Gomez uh, he worked for Vivian doing all of their um, exhibitions and he said well what are you up to and I said well I, I want to do this exhibition and he was like, oh, okay. He said, well, I'm going to the Savannah College of Art and Design. Uh, send me it. And I always say this, but you know when you're in a party and everyone's talking and nothing yes. ever happens yes. from that talk? Yes. <laughs> nothing ever happens. Um, <laughs> well, he called me two weeks later and said, send over what you have. And I said, you're going to have to come and see it. And it was in a big old lockup, which you know, I managed to borrow some money to pay for. He came, uh, it was in Coventry, um, went back to my mum's house and we uh, opened up the container and as an artist and also a designer and all these things that you, you know, these industries that we're so used to working in and hearing the word no too much, um, he said yes to ev nearly everything. And so we ended up shipping it to Atlanta I built 32 sculptures. Um, I wanted to do 32 because that was my age. Um, <clears throat> they were three tapestry versions of my life as living as art. So that's what, um, and that's how that exhibition came around. So I was so fortunate for that to happen to me and that just changed my whole life. Um, so then I did a book and the exhibition started to travel um, Hamish Bowles from Vogue, um, I reached out to him and said, I'm finally doing, he said, you're finally doing something on your own. 
And I was like, yes. And so uh, he then said, okay, we want to do, um, uh, we want to, we want to do a feature on it. And so the feature became the third biggest thing on Vogue.com um, that month, which was huge. And then CNN style, CNN in Atlanta, when they do an article, it truly goes viral. Mm-hmm. So they did an article on it and they came to see the show and it went, it just kind of went crazy from there. And I did the book, the show then traveled around the world to different places. It's still traveling and there are three dates set even after COVID, which is amazing. And so, yeah, that's, that's what happened. So when I, when I gave up working for everyone else, um, it really worked in my favor. Mm, through the fire we rise. It's, I think it's such a, a, a brave, and well, brave, is it brave? It's, you, it's such an incredible sharing moment to, I think for young artists, young queer artists to be reminded, because to me, you're a superstar. <laughs> yeah, like you've always been someone that I've looked up to. And, and I think that thank you so much for sharing that moment in your life and that transition into finding your feet. Because often I think queer people don't know how to almost like ask for their value in stuff. I think quite often when we're working so hard and we're doing a lot of this work, oftentimes we're getting loads of wonderful things, but no payment. And it's really, uh, it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about talking to young people about now, because I went through a very similar situation in 2016 through that it was actually a result of an injury. I really hurt my eye and it triggered something that I had in my system I couldn't see and obviously if you film under bright lights or you're doing other people's makeup and you can't see obviously everything goes to shit so I I had to put all of my things into a storage unit and it was like a time capsule of my whole house I had this like huge apartment that I built myself and all this stuff and then I've only recently been able to go into that apartment during lockdown and really sort out all of that stuff because it was so triggering to me um that I had to kind of like put myself away and I, I I really am inspired by what you've said and, and how you've got here so thank you for saying all of this um that's obviously not the only thing you've been doing you've also done an incredible collaboration with the English National Opera the Mask of Orpheus and Swarovski so what was that about because that was insane well um so Daniel Kramer so I okay I was <laughs> attending the English National Opera. My friend Nikki Demetz, who used to run the Mets um, Club, uh, and my friend Tyne O'Connell would invite me to the opera. And I would go, and I became friends with them. And I would bring people like David LaChapelle and Pamela Anderson, and we would have crazy nights out. And I got a phone call saying, uh, from, from my friend Sarah that worked there, she said, Daniel Kramer would like a meeting with you. And I was like, oh, no, they're going to ask me to do PR for them, you know, because I'm bringing all these people. And he came in, he said, I've got your book. I want you to do an opera. And I was like, what the hell? Um, so I did an opera. He came to my show in Reykjavik. Near the volcano. Um, where the volcano is about, to, well, it's just gone off. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then he... We worked for two years on an opera called The Mask of Orpheus. And we got Swarovski. The first thing I said is, I need Swarovski crystals. And they sponsored it, thank goodness. And they gave us um, over 450,000 recycled crystals. So (laughs) that was amazing. And how I came up with that is that I dreamt. I went to sleep listening to the music. And I dreamt it. And then on the first day of preparation, all the outfits were being made at this time. Harrison Burt Whistle held a meeting. It's very rare that you get to meet the, the person that creates these great operas. And it hadn't been done for 30 years. And I went over to him and I said, look, I hope I've done you justice. And I said, how I came up with things were not looking at references, but I dreamt. And he said, well, you got it right then. Um, and I said, not just dreams, nightmares. He said, this is perfect. Um, so he I had his blessing. So I don't really care. The critics, this is the other thing. I said, can we just not invite the critics? Because I don't think they're relevant anymore. Um, and obviously you can't say that to an opera organization. And they obviously can't do that. 
because they do sometimes depend on critics. But when the critics came, for example, they, they were like, you know, so ignorant. The word is ignorance. They were like RuPaul's Drag Race in Mexico. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know. You, I mean, they seem so uncultured, yet they go to operas all the time. It's, it's mind boggling. So um, <laughs> that was that. Uh, and it was amazing. It was a huge success. And I had, so it was almost like uh, the end of a chapter just before COVID actually. And I had Luke Evans, Ruby Wax, um, Arlene Phillips, Vivian Westwood, Paloma Faith, <laughs> uh, Patrick Wolf, um, Andrew Logan, all these amazing people that I've met all along the way. And they were uh, Jay Dewan, who modeled for me in the first show. And it was, and people from Bulgaria who I've been working with recently. And it was just like, um, you know, it was like, finally I've done something with, I, I felt like I'd achieved something. Um, I know I've done a lot, but that felt like a real achievement because I've worked with one of the greatest companies in the world in, in, that, in that area. And I, I knew I created something beautiful and it blew everyone's mind because I don't think anyone's seen anything quite like what we did. And then Vogue featured that. And, and so for me, it was like a, a, a restart, you know, with thinking how I am, what I do and everything else. It was, in a way, it was a confidence booster, but in a way it was like a, a, a needed to, time to rethink. So that was that, yeah. And then <laughs> I worked with this lady called Christina, um, on the costumes there and she just held my hand all the way and made it all happen so that's pretty amazing I think it's strange as well because those areas are so snobbish it's like I think it's very sad to me that sometimes these institutions they they maintain the rules that applied before such massive cultural changes have occurred in real in the real life and they're still almost living in a tangled bike because even with fashion i think sometimes the fashion and beauty industry are still quite snobbish and and they're not even like as sophisticated as the ballet or the opera and it gets even worse the more classist you go up the ladder i guess but it was fantastic i i that's a very strange comparison to drag race i, I wouldn't have <laughs> what a strange criticism <laughs> you know working with the English National Opera they are not snobby like the way um, some other opera places are because I've worked with that, some of the other opera places on different projects but they were the ones that were like we need inclusivity we need sustainability and these are all the things that I stand for so and I've always stood for and I can proudly say that um, but they were the ones that were like, yeah, we need to do this, right? And I was like, of course. Um, and, you know, there's a, we can always push more and more and more. I think we need to. Um, but we, we had a good, a good cast and talented, talented people on stage. So I was really happy about that. And the people behind it were just incredible. So. You're doing so much work at the moment. Um, we talked about Clubhouse um, at the beginning today and all the activism you're doing, speaking directly to people in countries that are still um, dealing with very antiquated laws that are around anti-LGBT. But you've been doing this for as long as I've known who you were. I remember when I followed you and I saw you were living with the Maasai. Um, <laughs> how, like, how has humanitarianism um, affected your choices in your career? Because I know it's something you're strongly a campaigner of. Yeah. Um, well, I went to stay with the Maasai for a period of time. And when I was there, it opened my eyes to the world. Because in the Western world, we don't see these things like... That, you know, and, and at that time, there was um, a full-blown AIDS epidemic where I was, and <clears throat> there were other diseases. I worked with a charity, so this is what I saw. Um, and I remember leaving and thinking, this is what I'm, I, I've left my heart here. This is, I've, I've just abandoned my heart, and I'm leaving it there, and I'll, one day I'll come back and pick it back up. But until then, I've got a fight. And I had a, you know when you're there seeing some very sad things, um, I mean, first of all, 
the people in Kenya are the most incredible people. That that were so happy and full of culture and joy and everything. Like it's such a huge celebration. I don't like talking negative, but these issues are real issues. So um, when I came back, I had a breakdown, like a real breakdown, and. It was it was weird because when you're in a when you see someone dying or when you see um you know you can smell death and you have to hold your emotion you can't break you cannot break at those points um so when i got back i, I was a wreck and i partied a lot then and i went completely off the rails um but it it changed my whole outlook on life and so that was the that was the driving point for me to um, try and help people, you know, and I've, I've been an activist for years, but I've never really, I've spoken about it online, but I, I'm rather kind of a, a doer and a, I'm speaking a bit more about it now, about the past of doing this. Um, but I'd rather do something than talk about it online and do a rant because that doesn't work. And I'd rather do something and get angry and do a status. I'd rather talk to someone and try and make something happen. And so stealth activism is what I believe in. Um, and fine, I can post things online and help in that way, which we, we all need to. But, um, you know, the last, the last year, I'm happy that the world is, everyone in the world is becoming an activist because it's needed. Um, I remember talking about sustainability and fashion 12, 15 years ago, and everyone laughed. They literally laughed at us. The, the institutions laughed, like the big you know, powers that be, um, and they're still laughing, and they're not doing enough. And so you know, that's where I, I stand with that. Um, and Clubhouse has actually opened this up, and I've never really had the opportunity to to talk to so many people all at once. Um, so Clubhouse, I formed this group called the LGBTQIA plus Allies Club. Um, and what it is, uh, what it's become is a place for us to speak about all our problems and situations. But what's happened is because it's in like the main algorithm, people from all over the world are coming in. So they're coming from Syria, Ghana, Nigeria, Yemen, um, Egypt, uh, all over and they're telling their stories to a room full of a hundred people and in that room um, we have some very privileged people and some rich people and some activists and some other you know other people from different entertainment and what we've been doing the past few weeks is actually getting our heads together and coming up with ways where we can help these people so we helped two people two refugees out this week the people in Ghana that were attacked by um, the, uh, the government, mm -hmm. we've been working with them. Um, so many things are happening and we're just being really active about it. And we're sitting there, think, racking our brains, listening. But the most important thing is to listen to these people and listen to what they want because we can't choose for them. Um, there are institutions that help people in need, but... If people don't want a certain help, you can, obviously you can't force, force them into it. And also you have to be very careful about these situations because you can't help someone online. You can't say, this person needs help here. And because what would happen is the place that they live in, someone from there, I mean, what happened, I'm working with someone from Nigeria at the moment called Charles and this horrible human being managed to get onto his Instagram account and um, screenshotted pictures of him and put it, put it on a blog. And luckily I know people at Instagram and Facebook and they managed to remove them. Um, but it became a witch hunt. And this is what's happening. We've heard stories of the worst things that you can imagine. Mm. Um, these people in Ghana are sitting in a house being told that they're going to be killed one by one. Um, there are people in Iraq um, who are just terrified. They can't even go out. They can't even be seen by the world. They live in a room 
um, there were some people in Turkey. The situation in Turkey is getting very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, a person in Syria said, I've never been gay outside my bedroom. No, I live with two gay people. We, we've never been ourselves outside our, our bedrooms, which is very sad. So, It's, it's an unbelievable um, rabbit hole to engage with because we talk about a lot of this stuff in terms of numbers and figures. And then when you have access to people through an app like Clubhouse, I guess it humanises the experience to such an extent. But there are so many things that I think a lot of people just are not prepared yet to realise, like how, for example, in Uganda, the Kill the Gays bill was drafted by the family who Biden just met with a week and a half ago. So even speaking about the the sort of like chain of this, because oftentimes the West has got more fingers and pies over there than they like to admit or we like to talk about. And often we're distracted by infighting, especially over things like pronouns and terms that we're not even aware of what's been going on in a coercive way and the impact are these people. And I think it's fantastic that you've consistently been bringing attention to these issues. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the Vivian Westwood burning of the archive, because I know you were involved with that. <laughs> okay, um, I'll tell you about that. <laughs> People might hate me now. Uh, I don't care. Um, so what happened was uh, I got home one day to Joe's house. I told you about Joe Corey. Mm-hmm. And Joe was sitting there with the newspaper. And Boris Johnson, who was the mayor of London, had just started to celebrate punk. And it also said the Queen was celebrating punk. And Joe went like bang the table and he's like, I'm gonna fucking burn it all. And I was like, oh, that's a bad idea, Joe. Um, (laughs) Then um, what happened was he said, if I don't announce it, I'm not gonna do it. So the next day I was on Twitter and I saw this, Joe Corey is going to burn five million pounds worth of the punk memory. And I was like, oh my God, well, I live with him, I'm going to have to be in this. And, and then he actually <laughs> talked me into it, his idea. And I'm not going to tell you what the idea is yet. I'll continue. So we made a film, and this film will come out at some point. And it's the only footage, really, where Vivian really explains what happened in the punk movement. Because no one really know what happens. She sat down, she was like, I created this. And it was like the anarchy sign. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, I created it. And I was like, what? That's like insane. Anyway, um, the five million pounds worth of punk memorabilia was burnt on the Thames. Um, there's a video called Burn Punk London. And we had to tell everybody that it was in another location because we had many people trying to stop us. But what happened was we told the media an hour before. We drove um, this famous activist bus next to the Thames. Vivian was in the top. And she, when it burnt, there were, there was like Theresa May, Savage Abbott, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, um, George Osborne, and other members of um, Parliament who were dressed in these clothes, but with balloons and like figureheads <laughs> and things like that. So um, I just, I got on the Reuters boat because uh, I saw the police coming down to try and stop us. And... I had to go to Miami the next day. So I managed to get this amazing footage from the actual, on the Thames with the Reuters. Um, although I set the whole thing up with him, I had to go to Miami the next day. I wasn't risking being arrested. Um, <laughs> although that boat, which is now sunk um, or gone, that was the only pirate ship on the Thames and it's in international waters. So we could do whatever we wanted on that and no one could stop us. So that's why we did it there. But, uh, so Joe then burnt everything and it was made into six million pounds worth of art. So, I mean, you know, take what you want from that. Six million pounds worth of art from ashes of five million pounds worth of um, history. Um, And then that was shown in Mayfair um, with Wissam Almala, the um, uh, Steve Lazaridis gallery who was Banksy's gallerist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then we've made a film of that. So that's really interesting. And, and Vivian came out the back of the bus and started preaching to the media 
why this was more what was more important than all this stuff burning so that's what happened that is quite a fantastic story <laughs> it was just so i i remember because i i'm obsessed with westwood clothes and i was like no give that to me when all of this was happening and this is me in my head <laughs> i asked joe the night before if i could have something and he gave it me and he said as long as it doesn't go in a museum <laughs> and i brought it to miami and it ended up in my exhibition in a museum but it's it's my stuff it doesn't belong to anyone it belongs to the public so oh. I guess you let me off with that one <laughs> if you were to talk to a young british queer artist and give them some advice about what they could best do to find themselves what would you say i would tell them that no idea is a bad idea even though someone might tell them that it is a certain time I'd probably tell them to go for it just go for it don't hold back in any way because you have to explore when you're young um, you make mistakes we all make mistakes um, but it's important that you do that I think um, also I would say do not compromise for anybody but yourself if you're an artist you know what, some artists can be very selfish, but there's a reason because they have a vision. And if you, you're an artist and that's your mentality and you have a vision and you're failing in that, your mental health is not gonna be good. So I would say go for it and, and continue and stop looking to be like everybody else, be, be who you are. You know, I spent so much time looking to be like other people and I realized I was already there I already exist and there's no way I can can be anyone else so and and the other thing is envy and jealousy are the worst traits you can have I think and obviously hate but they're the most soul-destroying so when you start to compare and when you start you can't compare yourself with anybody you know especially if you're an artist and if you if you can maybe you're doing something wrong you know start to just filter your own ideas, write everything down and, and continue with it and, and get your work out there. And, and it's, I'm, I'm saying this because I've been through it, but today it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 18, 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, and don't, don't forget, we've only been legal for 40 years. So imagine what you can do. Mm -hmm. Be yourself, everyone else is taken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oscar Wilde didn't say that, you know. Did you know? No. Um, I called my book Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken as an homage to Oscar Wilde. And he's known for saying it, but he actually didn't say it. It was, and I found this out when I was doing with the researchers from TED Talks. And the only time it was ever said in context to him originally was in a book about him. So he may have said it, but there's no documentation that he did say it. Well, you can say it. It's credited to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. I had a lovely time chatting. Um, how can all the people out there find you? I don't know you can find you you and your groups on the clubhouse but what else is going on with you and where can they buy your book and what's your social media um at daniel lismore um all one word on every every platform <laughs> every single platform there is uh i love social media but i love clubhouse more um and yeah that's and where can people buy your book? Is it available from all great retailers that sell wonderful books? It, it was until it sold out. <laughs> there, are copies, <laughs> there are copies on eBay and they're all signed editions. So um, I know you can definitely get it there. I don't know how many are left, but there's a lot sold over the past few months. But they, they are still there. So you can go and buy one there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. And hopefully when the pandemic actually opens up and safeness for everyone happens, we can hang out and chat more. 
hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lovely. All right, thank, lovely you well, so thank you so much. Um, I will speak, I will speak to you via WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Wow, what an awesome podcast and chat. Um, Thank you so much, Daniel, for having that conversation with me. It was really cool and I think so many people will be inspired and intrigued by it. I hope you guys all check out Daniel's social media. I'll link that everywhere the podcast is listed and also check out his work on Clubhouse because it's a really insightful way of communicating with places all around the world um, on these important and essential topics. I can't wait to see what's happening next. I will see you all in the next episode. Take care and love to all.